Yeah. And uh, as you can see, Sean's not here. He's not going to be here for the next two weeks, so that means you can take off if you want to. But uh, I didn't find out until Wednesday night that he wasn't going to be here. And Margaret called and said, could you fill in? And I said, sure. <laughs> and I talked to Ben, you know, the first time I did this was last spring. And I asked Ben, do you mind what I teach? And he said, as long as it's not Mormonism. <laughs> and I said, well, I was thinking about the five points of Calvinism. And he, he, he didn't appreciate that, but I said, no. <laughs> Anyway, what we did last time was, uh, for apologetics, of course, chapter 3 and verse 17, I guess it is, you know, be ready to give an answer uh, for the hope that is in you. So the last time, last spring, we talked about the fact that we have a hope and what that hope is and, and why people would ask you about your hope. Well, this time I, I told Ben, it, if, if Sean's going to keep taking off and... He, if I get to keep doing this, then well, he can do apologetics and I'll work whatever's in here through First Peter. Of course, you know, if we do that, we won't get done First Peter until, you know, 2025 or something like that. So that's not really the intent, but that's, uh, since I'm familiar with First Peter, I've been working in First Peter, figured I'd, I'd share from First Peter. We'll go to chapter one today and see as far as we can go. Uh, and yes, turn, your volume up just like turn my volume up. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I tried bending that thing, it won't bend. <laughs> bend. Oh, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Testing 4371. Would it help to get your mic closer to your face? Oh, I don't know. I can hear myself really good. <laughs> but it's only because this is being recorded that I need a mic. Otherwise, I just shout. <coughs> Am I fine? Can you hear me? Yep. Can you understand me? Yes. No. <laughs> no. Can you turn the speaker like <laughs> anyway, might be a good idea if we prayed. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us in granting us another day of life and another opportunity to gather together with your people and to worship and to adore you. We thank you also for this special day where we get to show our appreciation for our pastors. We do indeed, Lord, thank you for them, for Ben and for Roger and for their wives. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to equip them and enable them and instruct them that they might be able to shepherd us and guide us as a congregation and continue to feed us that we might grow. And now, Lord, we pray for Sean, wherever he is, we ask your blessing on him and Pray your blessing on our time together today as we look into your word. And we thank you for this opportunity to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, see how far we can get. I'm going to read the chapter 
And I have all kinds of devices up here because I have to have things that I can read from. Okay, let's see if I can find it. All right, you ready? Get First Peter chapter one. How many of you got Bibles and stuff to read? I had thought that I grew up in an independent, fundamental, pre-millennial, King James only, old-time, fashion, gospel-preaching Baptist church. And we didn't really have a liturgy, but, but uh, every once in a while, we would actually read from the back of the hymnal. And you ever did a responsive reading where I read one verse, you read the next? You're brave? You want to try that? Oh, that's right. I'll just read mine to you. Yeah, that's true. Because remember, I grew up in the King James only, independent, fundamental, pre-millennial. We're all on the sign, by the way, out front. Okay, First Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So that'll confuse some of you. Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tried by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and though you now do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Hmm. I don't know if you ever listened to the preacher, Scottish preacher, Alistair Begg. You ever heard of that guy? He comments that we like preachers with accents. That's why I like Alistair Begg, because he has an accent. But anyway, he's big on expository preaching and teaching. And uh, I like what, what he says about expository. That's the way I was raised, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And I didn't 
really know that there was any other way of, of teaching the Bible. Anyway, he, he's got a, a, I don't know what the word is. What is the word when you use letters to? Yeah, one of those. He calls expository preaching scrotus, which means that's S-C-E-O-T-S, systematic consecutive exposition of the scriptures. And I like what he says about the value of, of expository preaching. It demands the preacher become a student himself. Ben is definitely a student of God's word. We appreciate that. And then it enables the congregation to learn the Bible in the most obvious and beneficial way. It also lets you know where he's going to be next week. So you don't have to worry. You can prepare ahead of time. The last thing he says is, which I really like, it prevents the preacher from avoiding difficult passages. First Peter has no difficult passages. Yeah, you're laughing. The last preacher that I sat under decided he was going to preach through First Peter verse by verse. He skipped verse 2. He skipped verse 3. And he turned it into a discussion on the character of Peter. I wasn't too impressed. But anyway, I, I, I listened faithfully and, and got a lot out of it. And, and, uh, but I believe we need to go verse by verse, actually word by word. And uh, so First Peter, first of all, just as, a, as an introduction, is, is an epistle. If you read it, how many of you have read First Peter? Good. Yeah. It's an epistle that Peter writes, and, and it concerns the reality of Christian suffering and how to handle it. And it's dealt with in all five chapters. For example, starting here in chapter 1, back there at verse 6, it didn't use the word suffering, but it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then chapter 2, verse 19. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one suffers grief or endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And then verse 21. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God, important to remember, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I'm not going to explain that verse. 
chapter 4, verse 12. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Chapter 5, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And last, chapter 5, verse 10, but may the God of grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So do you know I think I'm right that the book has to do about suffering? Christian suffering and how to handle it. And did you notice some of the things that they were, what they were being persecuted for or suffering for? They were suffering for doing good. They were suffering for trying to please Christ in their daily lives. They were suffering because they weren't going along with the crowd anymore. They used to hang out with their friends and party and drink and commit all kinds of things. And now all of a sudden they don't do that anymore. And their friends want to know, well, why not? What's happened? And some of them are offended because now they say, well, you think you're better than us now. So they're suffering for Christ's sake, for endeavoring to honor Christ in their daily lives. And that's a good thing. And if you're suffering opposition in any way, shape, or form because of your obedience to Christ, then count it all joy because that, that's a good thing. These guys were suffering for their obedience to Jesus and their daily lives. Okay. So as Peter writes to them, his goal is to encourage them and enable them to know how to handle this, this, this suffering, this persecution. And so in chapter 1, you know, he begins immediately by reminding them uh, of uh, who they are. So, so he says he's addressing his, his, his letter then, uh, and, and, he, and, and he reminds them of their status in the world, and, and he calls them, in my translation, exiles, King James strangers, New International aliens, and the New King James, he calls them pilgrims. Now, the term that he uses, you're, you're in exile, has, well, two applications. First of all, many of these were indeed exiles from their homes, and they were living in strange territory. Part of the interpretation for exile is, 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 is uh, uh, living next to as an alien. When I lived in Canada, I was known as, as a landed immigrant. I was never known as a citizen of Canada, and I was always known as a landed immigrant and a stranger. And so the first sense of the word is, is, is that they were strangers living in a strange area because they moved to a new area. And the reason why I think I mentioned before why many of them had to move to different areas is because in that day, most of them in their employment were members of, of, of uh, guilds. And there, there was a tent makers guild, and there was an iron makers guild, and, and there was a shoemakers guild, and, and each of the different trades had their own guild in each of the cities, and each of the guilds, believe it or not, had their own deities that they worshipped. 
And every so often, they would get the guild together and celebrate their deities and do all kinds of wild stuff. And now these people who have now become believers in Jesus Christ can no longer attend. And because they no longer attend and no longer accept that particular deity, the tent maker's deity or the, the uh, shoemaker's deity, they're ostracized, they're kicked out of the guild, and their, their means of employment is gone. So they have to move somewhere else to find a job. <laughs> kind of similar to what's going on for some of our people today. They're taking a stand for what they believe is right, and they're losing their job, and many of them are having to move to other places. We have one family who's going to move to Texas. We have another one going to move to Oklahoma. We got another one going out to Montana. And, and these are all individuals that, that I know that have lost their job because they said, we're not going to comply. Uh, and that's, that's totally up to them. Ben preached on that. And, and if you want to get the shot, then fine. We love you and we support you. And if you don't want to get the shot, we love you and we still support you. Uh, but many are losing their jobs for taking a stand for what they believe they, that they should do. The other usage of the word exile is metaphorically, and, and that's uh, what we believe that Peter is actually getting at here. And uh, that's, that's the fact that as, as, as Christians, Paul says our citizenship now is where? It's in heaven. And... and uh, uh, Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and, fr and, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.9 says, uh, concerning Abraham, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promises, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then Hebrews 11:13, concerning all the saints mentioned in, in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. <clears throat> In Colossians 3, 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. <sighs> okay, so... In seeking to comfort these individuals, the first thing he does is remind them of the fact that they're pilgrims, that they're strangers, that this world isn't their home. How many of you live like this is not your home? <laughs> Most of us live as, as if our lives are gonna last forever here. And all we seem to be concerned about is making our stay here palatable, enjoyable without any concept of the fact that, 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 that we have been transformed, transferred from eternal death to eternal life. And that we're looking forward, and our hope is the fact that because of faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to spend eternity forever in heaven. And that should change the way you think. Everything you have here, well, you've heard the saying, you know, you, you came into the world naked, you're going to go out the same way. 
You can't take anything with you, uh, you know. Uh, but yet we, we live as if everything was so precious and we say, well, man, I'm going to get more wealth and I'm going to build new barns. And then God comes along and says, you fool, <laughs> today your soul is going to be required of you. Uh, and, 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 and the fact of the matter is we need to learn to live in light of, of where we're going and in the light of the fact that this world isn't our home. It's not the most important thing. It's not the most valuable. It is valuable, but it's not the end. So the first thing he does to encourage them is to remind them that they're, of their status in the world, that they're pilgrims just passing through. And then he goes on to, to remind them of, of uh, what they are in verse 2. Now, verse 1 in my, my translation puts elect in verse 1. New American Standard puts it in the end of verse 1. Everybody else seems to put it at the beginning of verse 1. So that verse 1 would read, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I like that way better. It's easier to, easier to understand. But remember I said, you know, uh, First Peter doesn't have any difficulties, doesn't have any tough subjects. Well, you just walked into two of them in verse 2. You got this whole idea of being elect, and then you have this whole idea of foreknowledge. And if you know anything about church history and, and churches, there's been a war raging forever and ever and ever over those terms. And of course, you know, I don't have any problem with them. The word here used for elect, I looked it up. This particular word only appears twice, and it means chosen, chosen. And Peter says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, now if you don't like the fact that you've been chosen, don't take it up with me. That's one of the things of having to go verse by verse and, and, and word by word. You've got to handle the words right in front of your face. And the inspired word of God says concerning believers, at least in Peter's day, and I believe it applies to our day, is that they were all not only strangers in the world, but they were also chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. And if you don't like that, well then, you know, take it up with Peter when you get there. I got a lot of questions for Peter. But then Peter says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, you know what foreknowledge means? Foreknowledge, pre-knowledge, you know, something that's known ahead of time. And if you stick to the text, what did God know? What did God foreknow? What did God know ahead of time? He knew that you were going to be sanctified in the spirit and brought into obedience to Jesus Christ and be washed in the blood of Christ. Foreknowledge in the New Testament as it refers to God, refers to what God foreknow beforehand that he was going to do. It's not what God knew beforehand that you were going to do. And many have that false conception that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God because he looked down through the corridors of history and he saw that we would choose to believe on our own. And so because we chose to believe, he chose to choose us, to elect us. Well, I don't know if you're in trouble with that, but I have a problem with that. 
You know, because my Bible says the natural man wants absolutely nothing to do with the things of God. We studied Psalm 14 Thursday night. Ben brought us to it. There's none righteous, no, not run. There's none good. There's absolutely none that seek after God. And I just want to tell you that if God waited for me to seek for him first, well, I, I'm sure I'd be in hell right now because I had absolutely no desire for God. And whether you realize it or not, there was a time in your life when you didn't either. Some of you were atheists. Some of you, some of you were actually antagonistic to God and the very thought of God. And all of us as sinners, you know, we rebelled against the God, even though that we knew that in our conscience that there is a God, but yet we denied the reality of God because we didn't want somebody over us telling us what we can and what we can't do. So if God had waited on us, it, you know, it just wouldn't happen. But that's not what the text says. It doesn't say that he looked down into history to see what you were going to do. It says that he foreknew what he was going to do. And that is that he was going to choose individuals out of a sinful fallen world. Now, the psalmist says that God dwells in heaven and he does what he pleases. And if you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar and what, what he went through and his testimony after the end of his spending all that time eating grass and acknowledge that, that, that the one true and living God does what he wants to do and there's absolutely nobody that can stay his hand or tell him, you know, challenging. Does God have the right to choose? Does he have that right? Well, I would hope so. He chose to create, and because he chose to create, you're here, and he has that freedom. And when he created you, he created you, the Bible says, in his own image, which, of course, for your satisfaction, the God who chose to create created you in his image, giving you the ability to choose as well. The God who created also created you with the ability to create. And Peter says he, he chose you because he had a purpose in mind. And, 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 and the fact that he didn't choose the whole world to, to fulfill this purpose in was totally up to him. He didn't have to save anyone. He didn't have to save me. He didn't have to save you. He could have killed two people and started all over again. But he had a different plan. And First Peter is going to talk about that plan as you, as you work through it. Because he's going to create out of a fallen race a unique nation a unique people that are precious in his sight, that serve him because they know what it's like to experience the forgiveness and the mercy of God. If the fall had never been allowed, there's a whole side of God that we would have never known. But now we do, and we rejoice, as Peter's going to say, with joy inexpressible and, and full of glory. But what was God's purpose? Well, according to verse 2, his purpose uh, was in sanctification of the Holy Spirit or by sanctification of the Holy Spirit or through sanctification of the Holy Spirit, depending on what your particular translation says. But God's purpose in choosing us was, first of all, to make us holy. The word sanctification here used means to make holy, to declare holy. It's not the same as, as progressive sanctification, where day by day the Holy Spirit enables us to grow in holiness. Peter's going to talk about that later on in the chapter, that we need to experience that and do that. But what God did is he chose us and by the power of the Holy Spirit made us holy. Well, have you looked at your life lately? 
Are you holy? I think I got a long way to go, don't you? But what he did when he sanctified us, he declared us to be holy in the sight of God. He said, I'm going to make them holy. They're not holy, but I'm going to make them holy. I'm going to, first of all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, declare them to be holy, to declare them to be right in my sight, declare them to be righteous, and then I'm going to work with them in another kind of sanctification in actually making them holy in their daily lives. But his first purpose in choosing us was to make us holy so that we could do something else. He chose us and made us holy for obedience to Jesus Christ. He chose us so that he could give to us the ability to obey Jesus Christ, as well as the desire to obey Jesus Christ. Do you remember the time in your life when you had no desire to obey Jesus Christ? And then all of a sudden, one day, the thought came to you, well, you know, being obedient to God and being obedient to Christ might not be such a bad idea, and maybe I ought to consider this. And what made you start thinking about that? Well, it's the fact that the Holy Spirit had already begun to work in you, and he'd already made you holy, and he was already starting the process of making you holy. And now you had an interest in Christ to obey him. And Jesus says, if you love me, what we do? You'll obey me. And now you have a desire that you never had before to obey Jesus Christ. He called us, he chose us to make us holy, to bring us into a life of obedience to Jesus Christ out of a life of disobedience. And he chose us to cleanse us by the blood of Christ, by the sprinkling of his blood. And that all he did without consulting us, he just began to work in us. Now, like I said, don't take offense, then this is a troubling subject, but once upon a time, I had no desire for Christ. And the only way I can explain it is he changed my mind. He changed my heart. He opened my eyes, and now I see. Like the blind man, once I was blind, now I see. Well, how do you see? That fellow over there touched my eyes. What fellow? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, having called us to this and purposed us for this, how does he accomplish it in, in, our, in our, our, our daily lives? Well, let's see if I can get down in the text of verse 3. Okay, where's the down arrow? Ugh. Someone want to read verse 3 for me? Oh, I got it over here. Somebody want to read verse 3? Nobody got a Bible that can read verse 3. Is everybody so upset with me they're not going to read? Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Good. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How does he accomplish what he's purposed to do in us, to make us holy and, and, and to can grow us in our holiness? He accomplishes it through the new birth. Now, my version says he caused us to be born again. What does yours say? Some say begotten of God again. The idea is still the same. Once upon a time, like Nicodemus, I had a physical life but not a spiritual one. 
And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you be born again or born from above, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And he repeats it again, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And chapter 1 of John says that as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name who were born, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. The way he accomplishes this work is through the new birth. He causes us to come alive. He, he makes us new creations in, in, in Christ Jesus. And that's what you are. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now you live. You've been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. And how did he do it? According to his abundant mercy. According to his abundant mercy. According to what he looked down in the eternity future and saw you were going to do. No, according to his abundant mercy, because he chose to be merciful to you. He caused you to be born again. He begot you again. And what should we do? Peter says, as a result of that, we need to bless God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. We need to praise him. We need to thank him. The word blessed there doesn't mean to make happy. That's not the word there. This one means to honor, to praise, to, to, to give glory to. And, and because of what he's done to us, Peter's excited, and he wants us to bless God because he's caused us to be born again. And that's what, how we're to respond to what he's done for us. Instead of griping and complaining and saying, what about my neighbor, or what about my Aunt Jane, or what about Uncle Tom? The fact of the matter is, he's demonstrated abundant mercy on you, on me, undeserved and then Peter goes on to say, well, uh, to all these guys, here's his prayer. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. What's grace? So I'd like to say the unmerited favor of God, right? Well, grace is, 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 is the enabling power of God. We need grace for every moment of our lives in order to live lives that are pleasing to him. And we all can say by grace, his grace, we do this and, and, and we do that. And so Paul's prayer for us and for these people is, is, is that grace be granted to them. He talks about great grace. And elsewhere in the Bible, more grace and abundant grace. Because without the empowering power of God, the empowering power of the Holy Spirit, we can't do anything. And so his prayer is that, that the grace of God would be granted to us so that we can fulfill the purpose of God in our daily life. And then his prayer is for peace. What's Romans 5.1 say? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I had a good friend when I was in Nova Scotia, a preacher from England, sat under uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, which they called the doctor. And he would make comments like that. You know, uh, he, he would quote the verse, uh, for by grace. No, he would say, uh, what was the verse I just quoted? Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? <clears throat> and get the same response as you guys. And he'd say, 
what, don't you know how to talk here in America? Don't you know your Bibles? When I leave it blank, you're supposed to fill it in. So, therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? <sighs> Peace with God. I have this little thing with my, there's 12 people. Started out with two high, two, two high school students going off to college, and I, I, I pledged that I would pray for them the whole time they were in college. And so I send them a text every day, and I send them a verse every day, but I don't give them the whole verse. And their job is to look up the verse and send me the completed verse. Well, my daughter said, because well, this is one of my grandsons, and she said, well, we need to include the other grandsons. So then it went to four people. Well, what about me? You ought to include me. So I went to five people. And now there's 12 on the list. And every morning I send these 12 people this verse, and it's only partial, and they have to complete it and send me the completed verse. It, it's, it's a good way to keep in touch. So when the pastor leaves a blank, you're supposed to fill it in. So therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in so Peter's prayer for these people is that they would also experience the peace that comes from knowing that they are in a right relationship with God and that God is at work in their lives so what comes next I have no idea what time it is so I don't uh, you know I couldn't see Anybody know? I have 10 minutes. <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't let you open it up for discussion because we would never get anywhere. We had a Bible study on Wednesday. and Anyway. But anyway, what's next? He caused you to be born again, and look what else he did. He caused you to be born again to a living hope as opposed to the dead hope that you once had. And... He, he, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We now have a living hope based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We serve a living Savior, and because he lives, we live. Never underestimate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not everybody who calls himself Christian believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is vain. You have no hope. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you're dead and you're going to stay that way. But he did rise from the dead. And not only did he, did he, did he beguile us again or, or uh, cause us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he also caused us to have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's given you a living hope, and he's also given you an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. That inheritance is eternal life in heaven, and that's guaranteed for you because he's holding it for you. He's keeping it for you. Aren't you glad he's keeping it for you? Because if I had to keep it, I'd lose it. I don't have the faith. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. And I don't have to worry about it. Because he's the one who's keeping me. 
how often has, has Satan come to you and said, I saw that lie. I saw that lustful look. I saw you stealing. I heard what you said. You're lost. You're not a Christian. Well, your response is supposed to be, you know, I don't care what you say. You may have seen what you've seen and heard what you heard, and you probably did. But that isn't what keeps me. What preserves my place in heaven is God himself. I don't know about you, but I've talked to several people, you know, recently. And uh, when I grew up, there was a magazine called Mad Magazine. Anybody remember Mad Magazine? Alfred E. Newman. And his expression was, what me worry? Well, I have the same expression. What do I have to worry about? I'm being kept by the almighty power of the one true and living God. And nothing can separate me from the love of my God. Now, you may be losing your job. You may not know what your future is going to be physically. You may have to move to another state. You, 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 you know, good friend just diagnosed with cancer. You know, you, you don't know. I praise the Lord. You know, I know that, 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 that I could die at any instant. But I got one of those hearts that, you know, doesn't really want to work. <laughs> it could quit any time I wanted to. But I'm not worried. My wife is. The doctors ask, well, you know, this could kill you. And I always say, well, I don't worry about dying. It's the recovery that I worry about. <laughs> but we have a living hope and inheritance that is undefiled, incorruptible, never will fade away, that's being held for us by God for the day of salvation. I listened to Alistair this morning, and he reminded people, you know, of the three tenses of salvation. You were saved when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You're being saved now from sin, the power of sin, and one day you'll be saved from the presence of sin. But we're looking forward to that day. I hope you're looking forward to that day. And I hope that through what's been said today, you'll realize that the mercy of God is sufficient for you. The grace of God is sufficient. And he will keep your heart in perfect peace. Just keep your heart steadfast on him. And even if you flub-dub, he's got you covered. So I'm looking forward to that inheritance. Greg Stone and I, just every time we see each other, we say, we're not getting older, getting closer. So Lord, what, take these thoughts and use them by the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish your purposes, to create added grace and more peace, and for those who haven't experienced it, to create new life. Then, Lord, give us the faith to trust you as we go through each day and know that you've got our back. Thank you for these dear people who have listened so patiently. You know what's going on in each one of these hearts. You know what's going on in each one of their families. You know what they need, and you know how to meet their need. Give them the grace they need, Lord, to trust you and to put you first and seek to please you in everything they say and do as 
husbands, wives, parents, workers. And we'll thank you, Lord, for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.